Coming up in Need to Know, we review our May Warden-Webster Better You Book Club book, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health by Dr. Rita Walker. In all the fields, Isaiah tells us about his time in the City of Light. And in Gotta Do, Pride Month is here and we remind you that it's not all rainbow toothbrushes and Bud Light cans. The podcast that encourages you to know, feel, and do to live your very best life. This is Ward and Webster. Hello. Welcome back, Bianca. Once again, you have way more absences than I have. How are you doing? <laughs> and I was just giving you credit for the way that you edited and put together that last Money May episode. I'm very proud of you, but then here you are being a jerk. Just. <laughs> and I love the fact that we are, I'm going to tell the wonders what we're doing. We're literally recording the day this comes out. So this is new. Wonders, it is early in the morning. I don't think I've brushed my teeth yet. I'm pretty sure I just threw on a t-shirt over my nightgown. <laughs> because it's that kind of day. But we are going to give you what you need. You're welcome. This is the first time, by the way, this is a historic show. This is the Mm -hmm. first time that we've recorded a show, I think the same day that it comes out. (laughs) We're doing some new fancy shit, which means y'all gonna get what you get. (laughs) Because we don't have time to like, look, you're gonna get what you get. This episode of Warren and Webster is brought to you by the letter M for Memorial Day weekend. I am going to recap real quick. We know Memorial Day weekend kicks off the summer, but it is also DC Black Pride here in the district. And this was my first time like really participating in Pride in a long time. And when I tell you last weekend was everything I did not know my spirit needed. It was so, 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 so good. I saw so many people I hadn't seen in years. There were hugs, there was tears. DC Black Pride did an amazing job with the events that I attended. The host hotel was wonderful. I heard the parties were great. The workshops I went to, the organizations I met, I got to see um, our good, good friend, George M. Johnson and hug him up a little bit. Um, I got to see other wonders. So it was good. I got, I, I picked up a little award. They gave me an award, which is nice. And my mama and Cliff came to the award ceremony and that was cool. I received an ally award and I dedicated it to my mommy. She was the first ally I knew growing up doing just, you know, amazing things and love in her community. So um, to be receiving that award was, was pretty cool. But Pride Weekend, hands down, was a very good time. Very good time. I know it's not Paris and we'll get into your things, but I had a lovely weekend. It was great. I heard that the cookout was was rained on. Was that not true? It was rained on. (laughs) So it was one of those things where, and I was there from 12 to 6. It rained, like it would be hard rain and then it'd be misty. And then you're like, okay, it's going to stop. And then it didn't. And then it would just keep going. So it rained the entire time. However, people came out, <laughs> people came out, especially like around three o'clock. They had this really cute um, VIP, well, not really VIP because anybody could go into it, um, but beer and wine tent. And so everybody was kind of under the tent. There were performances, there was music, rain or not, folks came out and it it was a good time. I was out there, it was chilly <laughs> there the entire time, but but it was fun. And and one thing I realized too is rain, rain doesn't really stop us like that. So it had to be like thunderstorm and downpour and it wasn't given that. So yes, rained on, but a very good time. Well, thanks for the recap and congratulations on your allyship award. You know, one thing I can say about you, Bianca, is that you really are a true ally in in every sense of the word. And so I've always, that's one of the things I've always appreciated about you. And so I'm very happy to hear that others recognize that as well. And it's always nice to get an award and go on stage and to thank the people in your life who've made it possible. Me at the top of the list. I'm sure you said nice things about me. So congratulations on the award and thanking me during your your acceptance speech to the Academy. Again, again, my mama. But our past guests, uh, Kenya Hutton and uh, Uncle Earl folks were there and I got to hug them up as well. So it was good. It was just, man, it was great. It was great. It was great. And yes, 
not thanking you, just my mom. Other thing I wanted to talk about real quick, just because every now and then I sprinkle in a little politics, Mike Pence <laughs> running running for president. So Mike Pence and Chris Christie, which we know Chris Christie has tried. This this ain't his first go around. He just be popping up for, for funsies. And Mike Pence, I wasn't surprised either, but what do you make of that? I cannot recall in my lifetime, and I could be wrong, you're definitely hipper to the politics than me, than a former vice president running against their president or their partner in crime, literally. Now, I would have to pick my brain. I remember Dan Quell ran after the fact, but he didn't at that point. Bush was already defeated and gone. So I don't recall offhand a vice president running against the person that picked them in the same like election. So that might be unique. I will go and do some research on that. But suffice it to say, you know, the chances of Mike Pence being president of the United States is zero. And I, can, I feel very confident <laughs> saying that. <laughs> and I think the chance of him being vice president is zero. So whereas I can probably see why Chris Christie's doing it, even though he has no chance to win, even though I can see why Tim Scott's doing it, even though he has no chance to win, this run by Pence truly makes no sense because not only is he not going to win, but no one's going to pick him for the administration. Trump's not going to pick him. And I don't think anyone else is going to pick him because of his alliance with Trump. And so his choice here is strange. I just, part of me is like, go, go, go sit down somewhere. Like, you know, just, you don't, you don't have to do this. As you said, the chances are zero, but I am, I am curious to see how far, if at all, this will even go or how it would play out. It would be interesting to see them in a debate. <laughs> I, want, I want Mike Pence to pull some receipts that we don't know about. I'm sure we'll be recapping and watching as this uh, these shenanigans and tomfoolery unfolds. All right, let's get into it. So in need to know, as always, we are reviewing our Warden Webster Better You Book Club book. We read in May whew, as part of Mental Health Awareness Month, The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health by Dr. Rita Walker. And just a reminder to the folks um, a little bit about what the book was about. In the Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health, psychologist and African-American health expert Rita Walker offers important information on the mental health crisis in the Black community, how to combat stigma, spot potential mental illness, how to practice emotional wellness, and how to get the best care possible in a system steeped in racial bias. So let me give my initial thoughts, and then I would love to hear yours as well. I appreciated, and even in the, what is it? The forward, the prologue, whatever that part is in the beginning where yes, somebody yes, else- prologue. Yeah, writes about. That writer just mentioned how this book felt like, I don't know, I don't remember how she put it, but kind of like a conversation, a, a conversation with your good girlfriends, like just how it just felt really casual and natural and personal, Right. And I will definitely say that throughout the book, it felt like, and I listened, of course, because, you know, me, it felt like Rita Walker, Dr. Walker, and put some respect on that, Dr. Walker was talking to her good girlfriends, talking to her sorority sisters, talking to the mothers of the church in the sense that it was relatable to a certain extent, easy to understand not heavy. It didn't feel textbookish. So it wasn't heavy on a lot of jargon. Like it was, it was very straight to the point. I appreciated that because I feel like anyone can, and we'll get to who should read this book, of course, but I felt like anyone could pick it up and understand and, and, and relate to a certain extent. My only pause with this particular book was that it. When I, when I chose this book and I read the, the title and the description, I thought it would be more inclusive in a way in terms of the African-American community. But it's very clear that she wrote this book for Black women. This book is very Black women. I would even, even say heterosexual Black women censored. Christian, like there was a lot of a lot of that type of context, examples, etc. throughout the book. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that because I feel like there is clearly an audience. However, I 
she she opens the book, the very beginning of the book, content warning, folks, because we will be talking about suicide and um, and mental health and mental uh, health diagnoses. Um, but she she opens up in the very beginning, talking very heavily about suicide, about um, suicidal ideation, about um, death by suicide, et cetera. And so I appreciated the fact that she was like, okay, let's let's kind of talk about this first because this is a very serious topic. It is something that we are definitely seeing in our community even more so, et cetera. So let's put this at the forefront. Like it was literally at the forefront of the book. But I was, I wanted her to, I would at least say for me, the more I hear about um, death by suicide, it's, it's Black men I'm hearing um, even more so about. And so throughout the book, I was like, yes, go ahead, girl, write this for the sisters. But I felt like there was, um, it was missing some balance for me because I want um, place and space for Black men to talk about their mental health as well. And I thought that this book would be more all-encompassing of, of both. Can I put a pinpoint on the suicide point? Because I actually mm-hmm. want to come back to that and make a larger point, thanks to Dr. Walker's assertions here. But I actually want to start with, so, so when, as I was reading it, and full full disclosure, I've only read half the book, because I had to put it down. But she starts out by explaining that she has a PhD in psychology and that she wanted to write this book specifically to challenge the privileged assumption that depression in Black people looks the same as depression in white people. So she makes that Mm -hmm. very clear at the top of this book. And the point she wanted to make is that there are some similarities, but that depression, the depression experience is very culture bound. So if you're a black person, your depression looks, feels different than white people, et cetera, et cetera. Now I say that now I want to go back to the, the, the suicide um, note, because to me, I drew the link from that to the way that our society looks at suicide writ large. So if you just were to follow like pop culture and the news, you might be left with the impression that suicide is like a white male thing because, or a white people thing, because that's how it's covered. And so for a long time, that's how I thought. I was like, well, you know, why are all these white people killing themselves? The fact of the matter is, is that this goes back to, do we talk about the health and mental health of all people? Or do we talk about the health and mental health of just some people? And we've covered on this show many times about how the devaluing of Black lives, the devaluing of our health just makes it such that why would that be something that we even need to talk about? So the top line of looking at all of the suicides, all of the reported suicides, and saying that X percent are, are white men and they're within this age bracket, that's true. But then you look at, okay, how do, how do these events get reported? How are they captured? Who's capturing the data and that type of information? And so then you start to see all of the complexity in there. Back to the point that you made about um, the audiences. I did kind of feel like this was for Black women. This almost felt like a Black women's view to me, some sort of like coffee clatch. <laughs> but I didn't mind it. You know, I felt like, you know, that's okay. Um, but I I do think that maybe she struggled with, I'm not even going to say struggle. She's a Black woman herself. She wrote the book she wanted to write and it just came out the way that it came out. And And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that per se. Maybe she should have just titled it slightly differently. Okay, so that, right? So I think maybe the the titling, maybe even in the description. One thing that she mentioned that kind of circling back to something you said that she mentioned in the book that I really appreciate that stuck with me is she was kind of talking about how Black people sometimes are about the stigma around getting mental health um, services and therapy. And she says Black people will say that therapy is for white people, but why is pain and suffering for Black people? And I was like, word. <laughs> like, when I read that, I was like, yep, that, that yes, I can, I can see that. Like, why do we feel like and and obviously that goes back to a lot of just historical context that but that we have to continue to hold and carry pain and suffering and that that has to 
be our narrative and therefore staying away from therapy and getting help because that's for white people. And, and just the idea that we have to be so strong. Well, I feel like, well, you can correct me if you if you think I'm wrong here. I think it has less to do with that and more to do with just the socioeconomic kind of hierarchy of need. I've, I've always thought of therapy as privilege because it is in some ways a luxury. And when I say that, Bianca, if you're hungry, if your car needs gas, if your children need you know, clothing, then you have to prioritize those things ahead of therapy. Even if you, even if you acknowledge that therapy is a, is a need because you have other greater needs. And I think that one of the reasons why it became such a privileged thing is because people who had means who had all their other needs met could afford to go and pay someone to have their mental health needs met. Where in, when our community, we didn't necessarily have the money for that. Great point. I think now mental health, I think especially since the pandemic, maybe even before then, um, yes, still still costs associated to it for sure. But I think that there are more options now, more options in the telehealth space, more options in the free and reduced costs space. Even I remember like once upon a time many years ago where even your insurance uh, company would be like, okay, we'll give you 10 sessions or like it was very limited and that they moved to unlimited sessions. And thank God, because me and my therapist, whoo, chill. Um, I need all the unlimited things that I can afford. But but you're right in terms of that that hierarchy of need. I think what could be helpful and maybe something that we could do is continue to put out and share resources that are either free or low cost. Because again, if if folks are choosing food or gas to get to work versus therapy, they're going to they're going to go with what they're getting those needs met. So I definitely, I definitely see it as the privilege. I think one of the things that Dr. Walker really did well in this book is that it was unapologetically Black. She she talked very intentionally about the, the Black ex- experience from a historical context and now, and how that, how that has had an impact on our mental health and how and how it shows up and what it looks like to try to access services in a in a country that is not <laughs> built or support or supportive of our mental health needs. She touched on finding ways to you know, she did which I also appreciate even though I was saying in the beginning that it also felt very Christian centered because it definitely this book, you know, she talks about the church a lot and that's that's also our reality, right? For the most part. But she did, she was very clear that folks can have both. And the importance of, yes, you can pray and seek guidance from church, but also therapy. And I think that that is one of the things that, you know, I can't, I, I, I can't stress enough. If anything, if you're like, oh, I just want to pray about it. Well, then pray to God to send you a good therapist, y'all. That's literally what she says. <laughs> That's later what she said. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to Bianca, which is before we leave this point about the, the suicide. She does argue that, you know, when we internalize racist ideas, it leads us down this pathway of not viewing our Blackness in a positive light and that the risk of suicide goes up from there. And so two of the things that she recommends is to actually kind of pull yourself closer to Blackness, whether it is your natural hair whether or not it is African-American vernacular English. She actually says that if you lean into that, it promotes reconnection and reduces the risk of suicide. That was striking to me because I never thought, I never drew the connection between seeing someone in their natural hair, whether it be locks or whatever, the fro, the locks, whatever, and that being actually a mental health, I don't know, uh, I was going to say salve or medicine or some sort. I'm just going to say mental health kind of like elixir. Okay, elixir. Okay. Do you know what I mean? When you see someone, when I see someone with their natural hair, I'm just like, oh, well, they felt like being beautiful today. I don't know that I thought about it in any Mm. grander sense. Or when someone's using our language, I never, I never think about it in sense of, oh, they're they're protecting their mental health. But Dr. Walker makes the connection Mm. that they are, and that was an eye-opening thing for for me because I was like, 
you know what? You are absolutely correct. Like this idea that you have to, the mm-hmm. people out here trying to be white, I, that is very clear. It's clear to me how that can be destructive to mental health, to your soul even. So it makes sense, but I just never thought about it in that way. And I appreciate that she did. I think she even mentioned code switching as well. And like coming out of that, how many times have we talked about the code switching? Woo, child. Yes. So you're right. She she also mentioned getting back to an understanding just our African roots as, as a culture, our our um, sense of community as opposed to individualism that white supremacy culture teaches us. Using that framework of literally going back, Sankofa, <laughs> going back to to get what we need is is really powerful. This book, and then we can get into the who should read it, but this book, yes, felt like a coffee clutch. That is hilarious every time you use that phrase. <laughs> that phrase. It was, it felt relatable. It was easy. There were some aha moments where where I could see somebody reading it and being like, oh, when she was going through the different kind of mental health diagnoses and, and how that shows up. Or uh, when she talked about alcoholism and substance misuse and how that also can can manifest differently for the Black community. When she talked about Black uh, oof, black women and our need to save community or or be the saviors and how that really plays a heavy toll and just some ways to say no and set boundaries. I was like, okay, yep, let me just jot that down. You are making excellent points. And so there were a lot of great takeaways, but just going back to, I would have liked to have known or realized from description of or even before I chose the book, like this book is centered around the Black women experience intended for something to that effect. But I didn't hate it. I didn't. I actually mentioned it um, last week. Ooh, last week was busy. Last week, I also attended the social work conference on HIV AIDS, and I was in a session about the intersection of HIV and Black mental health. And it was actually really, really good. And I actually brought up this book to to the presenter. I was like, hey, you know, I'm reading this book. And he was a Black man. And I was like, and it's great. But I also asked him, um, and I can't remember what he said. I think I may have jotted down. Like, what resources would you recommend for, for Black men's mental health or something that is more inclusive? And we, you know, kind of talked later. But I just, I don't know. I want a little something for, for everybody. Well, that leads, that's a good segue into who should read this book. I think it's fairly Mm -hmm. obvious. I would say Black women and girls. Mm -hmm. And I think that they would feel the most at home with this book. I wouldn't say that it's not that Black men can't read this book. Obviously, I read it and I I stopped reading it because I just found it kind of dense and the topics were very weighty. And Mm -hmm. so like, I feel like this is the, you have to be in the mood to read this book. If I'm being, that's just my personal opinion. This is not, this is not a joy read (laughs) y'all. Right. It's not. You need to be ready to do some work and some introspection if you're going to read this book. And I read part of it and then I was like, I need to put this down and I may go, I may pick it up again and finish it. But that's that that was my situation with this book. But it's not in any way a hard read. It's just a weighty read. I would say in terms of who should read, um, yes, Black women and girls. I would also encourage mental health practitioners of all races and genders, if you are working with Black women and girls, to read this book. Because I think it was definitely, I was like, oh, yeah, the same way our... I'm not yelling book. We were like, oh, who needs to read that? We were like the DEI folks, the HR people. Yes, this is this is similar. Anybody who is having any type of therapeutic or behavioral health relationship with Black women and girls, they should read, they should read this book because I really think it does offer a lot of context to I'm not going to say why we do what we do, but it it does give a little bit of that. There was definitely a lot of aha moments even for me. I was like, oh, okay, I see now. And I'm putting the the pieces together um, kind of in terms of how we got here in a different light. So that would be, that'd be my recommendation. Well, (laughs) we're going to announce the June book at the end of this show. We got a great gay title for you. So stay tuned for that. But we're moving on. In this week's All the Feels, I'm happy to recap my French adventures. (laughs) 
to let you all know what Bianca missed and how great it is in Paris and in the south of France. If you've been listening every week, you notice that last week's show was preempted because Bianca was busy working. I was busy getting ready for vacation. And I literally just got back last night. So that's why we did an encore show last week, because we were just busy. You know, you get what you get. But we're so happy to have you all back. And we're happy to be back. And I'm happy to share my story about how my vacation went. So I was in France for a week. And I went to France for the French Open, also known as Roland Garros. It is the second of four Grand Slam tennis tournaments. And my friend Carmel and I, Carmel, who's been on the show, we have this bucket list to go to all four majors, the four majors being the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. So this was our second kind of bucket checked because we've done the U.S. Open and now we've done the French Open. After the French Open, which takes place in Paris, we decided to go to the south of France, which is Nice, Monte Carlo. I'll get into that. But at the very, the very first day of this trip, so I got to Paris on a Friday afternoon. That Friday night, Bianca, we had tickets to see Beyonce in Paris. Now, there had been some rumors that Madge would show up and perform with Beyonce as a part of the show because one of Beyonce's songs samples some of Madonna's Vogue and she kind of repurposes um, where Madonna name checks all of these white icons. Beyonce name checks all of these black icons, but she starts by thanking Madonna, Queen Mother, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone's like, oh my God, Madge is going to be there. They're going to sing it together. That did not happen. Madonna was not there. However, Blue Ivy was there. <laughs> Even better. And you're welcome. <laughs> Show. Now, I did not. So this was, I don't know if, if, Blue, if Blue Ivy's been in the show since, because she did another show in Paris and she's done mm. some shows since. So I don't know if she's, if she's done it again, but this was the first show that she had uh, joined her mom on. And I didn't understand why. So she joined her for the song and, and Beehive, forgive me, Bianca, you may know the name. Uh, we run this, uh, women, uh, we run this friend. Who runs the world. Yes. That mm-hmm. was a song that she joined her mom for. She was a dancer and she was very stiff. <laughs> uh, she's 11. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, Why are you I'm doing gonna, this? I'm going to get to that. I didn't understand. I don't think that Blue Ivy added anything to the show. It was, a, it was, I was, I was wondering how and why she was included. My friend, one of my friends said, it felt like it felt to him like Blue and Beyonce were sitting, maybe having breakfast one day. And Blue was like, Mommy, can I please be in the show? And, be, and, and Beyonce was like, Sure, girl, we'll get you an outfit too. It felt very afterthought ish. <laughs> that is so patty. Because the song is not about her. And so there's really no reason to have it. It's about her girls running the world. And she's okay, a little girl. You know what? Here's the thing. Most celebrities go out of their way to shield their children from the spotlight and from the press and from the paparazzi. And so it, it is unusual, not unheard of, but unusual to see such a such a huge star center their child in that way. But that's neither here nor there. The show. First of all, Beyonce looked and sounded fabulous. I mean, just just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. She opens the show. I don't know any of the names of the songs. I have to sing them, which, of course, I can't do here. But this. Um, uh Dangerously in love. She's, she opens with Dangerously in Love. And then, you know, only a few bars of that. And then she gets into the show. This show was, I would say, three-fourths Renaissance. So if you went into the show expecting her to sing Greatest Hits, you left disappointed. Because she was like, nope, that's not what this is. I'm giving you Renaissance. I might throw in a few little other tunes here just to keep maintain your interest. But we're not, we're not doing that today. Because I haven't, because I don't own Renaissance, because I haven't listened to it. A lot of the songs I couldn't sing along because I had, I don't know them. So I know the oldest stuff. So I'm, you know, bopping, but it would have been a different experience for someone who knows every single song. The visuals. So she uses lots of visuals in the show, both when she's on stage and when she's in her costume changes. And they were phenomenal, just amazing visuals. They actually got better as the show went on. The one critique, and there's really only one critique, is that the show is more than three hours long. 
And so at some points it starts to drag and I just feel like she could have chopped it by 30 minutes and would have been absolutely perfect. Now, if you are like one of these Beyonce fans, you're like, I could listen to her sing and perform all night. I don't care. It could be five hours. You know, maybe there's people that out there like that. I thought that it was a tad bit too long. And my friends agreed. That was the only complaint is that the show was just too long and needed to be edited. But otherwise, Bianca, it was fabulous. Lenny Kravitz was at the show that I was at. What's the Kardashians mom? Uh, Miss Jenner. What's her name? Uh, the mama. The mama was there. Uh, there was Pharrell was there. So there was a lot of celebrities at our show and we were near the VIP seating area. So we saw them walk in. So that's how I know that these folks were there because we had my friends and I were able to get video of them coming in into the arena. We were we had a spot right behind Club Renaissance, if you're familiar with the seating chart for the show, which is a standing section between the VIP section and the first level of seats in the arena. So it was fabulous. Um, I loved it. There's this crazy law in Paris where they don't allow you to drink in like um, arenas or stadiums. And so we were expecting to go and like get sloshed and listen to B sing yes. her ditties. We were, our, our feelings were completely hurt when we got there and they were like, yeah, we don't sell, we don't sell liquor in here. And we were like, go what? <laughs> this thing, I'm not getting a, drunk and acting an ass in our city, damn it. They that, wasted an opportunity to make a lot of money because we were so, oh. we had our mouths ready <laughs> to sip on something. But no, we had to go through the show sober. But outside of that, it was great. Um, let me, Blue Ivy real quick. <laughs> She's 11. If Grace wants to come on stage and perform me, she coming. And uh, in terms of, so, you know, Blue Ivy has been, she also performed with, Beyonce for that Oscars. What was that song that that we didn't love? Um, <laughs> okay, but Blue Ivy was one of the dancers for that too. There's been there's been a few times Blue Ivy is like, I'm gonna come out here and give you a, a two step and a shake with my mama. But in terms of shielding, I think Beyonce has still been shielding the twins because I rarely see them. I keep forgetting that she have a whole set of um twins at the house as well. But she's letting her daughter have a little shine. I'm here for that. You know what? I love it. If she likes it, I love it. <laughs> okay, French Open. Mm. So after that, we did the French Open at Roland Garros. We tried to get tickets to two days, but we were only able to get tickets to one day. And the, the tournament was fabulous. Uh, Francis Tiafo was playing the day that we were there. I did not get a chance to see him, but some of my friends did. He is the uh, African-American tennis player from right here in, in Maryland, and he's still in the tournament. So go Francis. Um, the tournament was great, Bianca. I mean, if you're a tennis fan, you know, being at a, a Grand Slam tournament is, is the height of tennis. The grounds were not as fabulous as the U.S. Open. So when we got there, we were like, this is nice, but it doesn't have the same energy as the U.S. Open in New York. Um, also, you can't drink at courtside, but you can in New York. So we were expecting, again, we we had a New York state of mind. And so that's what we were expecting. And they were like, yeah, we're not, we don't do that here. I will just say this. One of the things that it's important to remember whenever you're traveling outside the country is just like the normal customs that we have here that we kind of take for granted as normal. When you go somewhere else, they're not normal. People, every culture does things differently. And so you you just have to be mindful of that. One of my friends had some issues even entering the grounds because, you know, the people at the French Open wanted people to enter a certain way. And if you didn't enter exactly the way that they wanted you to enter, then you have to go to, back to the, to the queue. And it to us, it didn't make sense because we're right at the entrance. You know, they're like, we were like, just let us in. We're right here. And they're like, no, you have to do it a certain way. So, you know, it's that sort of thing. I chalk it up to we're foreigners and what seems like nonsense to us is actually very sensical to them. So that's kind of what I chop it up to. My friend Carmel did have a little run in with, with some gate agents and with some of the officials at, at the French Open. I would even say that she gave a performance with these people because she felt like they were <laughs> some sort of way. Um, at, some, at one point she had, she called the manager. <laughs> she is a black woman, but Wait, she called the what? manager. I love it. <laughs> She called the manager and said that she needed concessions because she felt like she had been discriminated against at the entry gates. And they, they just explained to her that she was she was going through the wrong procedure, but she was, you know, in her way. 
I didn't have any problems getting in. My friend Sean and I, we just basically walk right in, but we just happened to walk in in the way that they wanted us to walk in. Is, is that's the point of that story? The the, the tournament was great. Uh, the people were super nice. The tennis was fabulous. Now let's get to the south of France. Now, as y'all know, I can't really stand Paris. I've talked about that on this show before. So I was really excited to get out of Paris and go to Nice, which is where we went for the second half of the trip. This is about, you know, an hour's plane ride away from Paris it's in the south of France. It's in the south. You've got Cannes, Nice, Monte Carlo, like all of these little places in the south of France that are kind of known as like ritzy, aristocratic places for you to visit, like the moneyed part of France. So we went to Nice. Now Nice is really fabulous. And so this is like, uh, if I were to go back beyond, I would go back to Nice because it's got a relaxing feel. So whereas Paris is a city and there's a lot of hustle and bustle, you can't really relax there. Nice is where you go to relax. It's got like this old town feeling with lots of shops and restaurants, tons and tons of restaurants. It just feels very laid back there. It's great for relaxing right by the water or in this small old town feel. On the last day of our trip, we took a day trip to Monte Carlo. Need I say more? When, you, when I say Monte Carlo, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Money. Money, <laughs> casinos, <laughs> and what have you. So we took our mostly Black asses down to Monte Carlo, to mm-hmm. the casino. So we get there. I am in this fabulous outfit. I will post a picture, but I didn't. I wore some some sandals and apparently in Monte at the casinos in Monte Carlo even though the women can wear sandals the men cannot and so I was stopped at the front door because I didn't have the proper footwear on and she's like we have to refund your ticket and I'm like but why she's like because you don't have shoes on I said girl whatever I've got some shoes in this bag so I had I just had a change of shoes in my bag so I put on the other shoes but I thought it was very gendered Bianca that I could not enter the casinos of Monte Carlo in my flip-flops because my toes were painted a very nice periwinkle purple just for the occasion. I know how you love to paint them big old toes. So mm-hmm, I can only anyway, So my friend Xavier and I had decided that we were going to spend all of $50 in this casino. That was it. And that was more than the rest of the group wanted to spend because we're not gamblers. We're just, you know, we're basically just going to say we went. So we walk up to the little cashier at the casino and we're like, we'd like to, you know, take out $50 to, to waste in here. And the guy looks right in my eyes and he's like, there's a minimum of $500 at this window. But you can, <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> but you can go to that ATM and help yourself. And I was like, thank you, monsieur. <laughs> they said, take your $3 and 69 cents and get up on my face. <laughs> so that's, that's what they were giving. They're like, look, each, all the tables were like $250 minimum. It was fucking foolishness. So we mostly just drank, but Xavier and I did play. So I put in my little $50 into the little um, electronic blackjack machine. And I played for about 30 minutes and I won all, I put in 50 and I was able to cash out 50. So I won all of my money back. I didn't lose any money. And Xavier actually won, wait, Xavier actually won money. He got, he had $50. He played the roulette table the electronic roulette table he with only $50 and he won $9 and 80 cents. And so <laughs> collectively, collectively, we beat Monte Carlo to the, to the tune of $9 and 80 cents. And then we, we cashed our winnings out and left. <laughs> they have people playing a minimum of $500. They don't give a shit about your 50 bucks. <laughs> That's why they were like, here, take this, take this and your toes and get out of here. <laughs> but you, you know, I'm pretty sure there used to people, tourists just coming through there to say they went. Clearly we did. We did have a very nice lunch in Monte Carlo and we took lots of pictures and we walked around the city. It was really fun to say that we went, but it was a, it was a great vacation, Bianca. And i um, happy that I had that time with, I was there with four other friends, two of which I don't get to see very often. So it was just a really good time to spend an entire week with my friends in France. I felt very privileged and lucky to have that time with them and happy, uh, happy to be back to you and the wonders and back to Ed, of course. So I also forgot to mention to the wonders, I'm going to lean into the mic. Our Southern church auntie, Isaiah Webster III, was at the Beyonce concert in a sheer, what, what would you call it? A sheer top with mesh. His nipples. It's, it was mesh. Mesh with his <laughs> nipples out. As much as you get on this motherfucker show and talk about 
people's nipples, arms, belly buttons, and things. I said, well, look at you with your nipples out. I'm proud of you, friend. How did it, how did it feel? Well, first of all, as a, as a as someone who is you know adjacent to the leather community, I mean, I wear, I'm I'm accustomed to wearing all sorts of outfits, and I was covered. I will remind you, I was covered, and I think the occasion matters. And so I was at a Beyonce concert on a Friday night in early summer, and I feel like I was dressed for the occasion. My issue is not that people are walking around naked; it's that they're walking around naked at events that they should not be walking around naked at. When you're at the Academy Awards, your nipples shouldn't be out. You're at the Academy Awards. When you're at a rock concert, that's a that's a whole nother matter. And so to, I dress for the event that I'm going to. That's it. That's all. And I think the I think the cultured wonders. The sophisticated wonders, basically everybody except Bianca understands that. <laughs> Translations, your nipples were out and I shall be posting that picture. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we're glad to have you back. <laughs> Moving right along. Pride season is upon us. Once again, we remind you about rainbow washing and how you can truly show up as an ally. We are coming to you the very first Saturday in, not the, yeah, the very first Saturday in June. Pride season has officially, it is in full swing. And I knew it was because on June 1st, my emails were in full rainbow bloom. <laughs> from every company that I may have shopped with just, whew, it was like, I don't know, the, there's, there's clearly just a switch that goes off where all of corporate everything says, okay, it's time for us to uh, love the gays for these here 30 days and, and show that we care. So just a reminder, rainbow washing, if we didn't use that term last year, I don't recall, but I think we talked about pink washing for October as well, but rainbow washing is when, and I'm getting this from diligent.com, rainbow washing is when companies use rainbow colors on logos, products, websites, and more to signal support for the LGBT community. But the issue isn't the colors themselves, it's that the that companies sometimes use rainbow colors to win the business of queer allies without actually furthering equity and inclusion for individuals who identify as LGBTQ. I mentioned the um, toothbrush in, in the opening because even Quip, my electric toothbrush has a, a pride toothbrush, pride exclusive toothbrush because you know we need cleaner rainbow teeth. Are they in your inbox yet with with the rainbow things? Of course. And <laughs> um and it's annoying AF. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that means as fuck if you didn't know. Yeah, it's just it's just and it even it even kind of started even before um June 1st and so that's just it's it's just it's annoying. I want to get into the first article, Bianca, here that you have listed, because uh, this is the story that really kind of launched the idea for this segment. And it's just, you know, it's from Newsweek. It's about Target. And I'm going to read here a little bit about what's been happening. So I think the wonders are probably aware. I think Target is maybe the most prominent example of a company that was just doing their thing, trying to have their little pride section and make some coin. And then the, then some bigots, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of calling them conservatives. They're bigots. Bigots went in there and start performing and then they had to pull back. I'm reading from an article here from Newsweek. This article is in uh, is headlined, Target boycott over LGBTQ plus products is, is literally terrorism, quote unquote, according to an economist. This was posted on May 26th of this year. This is just the first three graphs of this story. Backlash and calls from conservatives to boycott Target over pride-themed products, including reported threats to store employees is literally terrorism, quote unquote, is an, an economist said on Thursday. Target was prompted to remove its pride-themed products after threats were reportedly made to store employees in the midst of anti-LGBTQ backlash. The retailer will be pulling the items, quote unquote, at the center of the most significant confrontational behavior from customers. That's according to a Target spokesperson. The decision to pull the products from the store, from some stores in the South, comes just days after the beginning of Pride Month in June. It also comes after recent calls from conservatives 
conservatives to boycott Bud Light because of its partnership with the transgender influencer and activist, their name being Dylan Mulvaney. A Target spokesperson told Insider on Thursday that removing the Pride products was a response to, quote, threats impacting our team members' sense of safety and well-being, end quote. So, Bianca, let me just paraphrase. Let me give you all the Isaiah version of that. People went into Target. They were throwing the shit all over the stores. They were threatening the employees. And instead of calling the Pope to get these people arrested for destruction of private property, for threats against people, they moved the displays to either out of the store or to another part of the store. Now, in what world can you and I walk up into Victoria's Secret, throw the bras in the floor because we don't like bras, and the Victoria's Secret would be like, you know what? You know what, Bianca and I say? We're going to move these bras to the back because mm-hmm. y'all have a problem with the bras. Bitch, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have, you ever in, have you ever in your natural life seen or heard anything like this? And the, and the, and the, and the controversy is almost 100% white folks cutting up in these stores. If Black people were doing this, they would move the display. They would move us. They would have the displays. First of all, all the displays would be locked up. So we couldn't get to them anyway. Same way when you go into some of the CVSs, you can't access the deodorant or the detergent. <laughs> okay. So they would one, they would lock them up. They're also, this, this is nuts. Today Explained did a great episode uh, recently called Targeting Pride, which was about this and rainbow washing as well. But just some of the TikTok videos, just the lies that that bigots were spreading about products that they were saying were were for trans youth or, or kids and it wasn't just 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 bullshit that people and, were running with and to put a finer point on it so i'm just gonna just for for the sake of discussion i'm gonna say one thing that these idiots are saying but it's not true but i just want to illustrate it for the for our listeners for example these people say that when you put rainbows on children's clothing that what we're trying to do is quote unquote groom the children to grow up to be either gay queer or trans, and that we should stop grooming the children with our bright colors and the rainbows, because if we don't do that, then they're going to grow up straight and narrow. Now, Bianca, as a gay man who (laughs) loves to suck on dicks, let me tell you how this works. It has absolutely nothing to do with the colors that you wear and everything to do with your innate internal orientation. And whether you wear a pink or blue or red or yellow or rainbow or no rainbow, unicorns or no unicorns, you could put a baseball bat in my hand and caps on my head every day. And that is not going to change the fact that I'm a queer person. And so, Bianca, I think what's lost in the sauce is that these people, they seem to think that if they remove the drag shows, if they remove the pride flags, if they take off the bright colors on the boys' t-shirts, then suddenly they're not going to be gay. That's not how that works. That's not even close to how that works. <laughs> At all. At all. <laughs> At all. But there's so many, so many people who believe that. So many, this idea of grooming the children, this idea of literally the the rights and the being stripped from the LGBT community and trans youth especially is astonishing. And so that that's what I've been that's what I've been seeing more, I think, this year and this June so far than anything else is people saying, okay, corporate America, it's not about the rainbow washing and you all doing and, and trying to get our money, essentially. What are you doing about the rights um, how are you protecting trans youth? How are you then putting these dollars? What are you putting these dollars towards that is actually going to help and and protect and uplift the LGBT community? Because they are often not. I had found in CNN, and the article that I had found was dated, so I actually looked it up, but specifically around the bills targeting the LGBTQ rights. 
it says at least 385 bills targeting LGBTQ rights and queer life have been introduced around the country through March 7th. So I actually looked it up. As of today, it's actually 491 bills. According to the data compiled in the American Civil Liberties Union, the number of bills has already surpassed last year's total of 306. The proposed bills cover a wide range of policies, including some that seek to restrict transgender people from competing in sports teams or using bathrooms that align with their gender identity. But it appears youth and medical care is the growing legislative focus. And as we already mentioned, there are so many, so many bills, so many laws and things that are, are trying to pass or being passed that really hinder and harm the lives of LGBTQ folks, and especially they are going after youth hard. Yeah, and it's very, it's very insidious. So what they often say when it comes to trans youth in particular, and the gender affirming, the gender affirming care, they always say, well, they're kids, they don't really know what they want, they are going through, they're growing up, why don't we wait until they're adult and let them decide for themselves whether or not they want gender affirming care, like they can decide when they're an adult if they want to go down that road. Anybody with any fucking brain in their head knows that if you are a trans person, if you reach adulthood before you start actually making your transition, then it's nearly impossible to make the transition. Conservatives know this. They're not stupid. They know that if you make it to adulthood, then you're probably not going to, it's going to be much harder for you to transition. If you realize at five that you're a trans person, then you will have a much fuller life if you can begin your transition in your youth so that you don't have to, you know, change all of these things when you're already a fully formed adult. Conservatives know this. And so when they say, well, we just want people to make it to 18 and then they can de decide for themselves. Gender affirming care is not something that can be weighted to decide until you're 18 because you've lived for 17 years. <laughs> what are we talking about? That part. And let's also keep in mind that some of these youth are not going to make it to 18. Thank because you. Because the simple fact that they, um, the increase risks of, of depression, suicidal ideation, um, suicide completion, all of these, all of these things, literally the mental health stuff that we have been talking about. Um, they're so, it, it's, it's proven that youth receiving gender affirming care have more fuller, richer lives. One, because they are getting the support that they, that they need from their family, from their community. That shit is life-changing, literally. Like I, I want to ask you a question about all these laws that they, you just referenced, the 385 bills targeting LGBTQ rights. Do you remember two and a half, three years ago when we had an uproar in the country over the mask? We were encouraging people to put a mask on to save their life and to save the lives of people within their community, Okay. And certain members of our country, certain people on the conservative right said that we didn't have the right to ask them to put a mask on because we were infringing upon their freedoms and their personal rights. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? I do, I do recall. I and, do recall. And all we wanted them to do was to wear a mask over their face, over their nose and mouth while they were around other people. And for that, we were, we were told that we were infringing upon their personal freedoms. Now, the, those same people... <laughs> Those same people <laughs> now want to pass 385 bills to tell other people the type of care that they can get or not get. Now, Bianca, I'm going to mute myself and let you explain it to all of us how that makes sense. It does not. Foolishness and fuckery, as we say here. And again, it is now 491 bills. <laughs> Let's be Thank you for clear. the correction. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. <laughs> They've added another 106 <laughs> since March. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't, I, I, I don't, I don't understand. And I have been, again, just, just a lot of just reading and podcasts, et cetera, been, been hearing about the stories of families who have had to, uh, with, with trans youth, who have had to relocate, who have had to pick mm -hmm. up and leave their state <laughs> in order to 
um, be able to access care for for their child. One, again, we talk about, um, let's be clear, there's also privilege in that a little bit, right? Being able to pick up and move somewhere okay. else. But at the same time, you know, again, thankful that these that children have parents that are willing to support and and willing to make sure that they are getting the care that they deserve in in a country that is is telling them that their lives and who they are is wrong. So it is I you know I have I have two kids as of right now, at least from what these children are telling me, their uh, their gender identity and who they are matches their sex at birth. But at the same time, look, they're eight and 11. So maybe we got time. We'll see what happens. Right. But I know that and not even maybe we had time, but I also know that as a as a parent, um, as a parent, as an ally, I am going to go help. Ha- hell and high water for, for my, for my kids. But the fact that all of these bills and these laws are being created in order to harm, Mm -hmm. um, literally harm (laughs) um, children and the LGBT community is, is, is mind blowing. I know you want to get to the allyship here in a second, and we have some recommendations from GLAD. So I just want to tell the wonders why this is happening. This is hard cold politics. It's a political calculation. Conservatives believe that by being the most extreme against trans people, against queer people, against drag queens, that this will motivate and animate the base of the Republican Party to stay engaged in politics. And so one of the tactics that you use in politics is that you need a boogeyman or a boogeywoman. You know, for a long time, it was Hillary Clinton. Then it was Nancy Pelosi. Then it was uh, critical race theory. Then it was woke. And so now the boogeyman is, oh, the drag queens, they're, they're a threat to society. You know, people have been dressed in drag for decades, decades, decades. The earth is still spinning. Nobody's harmed. But now all of a sudden, you know, we can't have drag anymore. It is the idea, you always have to have some, something, some threat that's menacing in the corner, that's ill-defined, that allows you to define it however you want to define it and to then cast on it what you want to cast on. And that's, that's all this is. I think what's important is just to understand how these things work and to be prepared to respond to them. And I'm going to take abortion as an example. So in a lot of these conservative states, Bianca, they outlaw abortion. But to go to your previous point, the privilege of it, the white conservative women, it's not that they're not having abortions. What they do is, is that when they need to have one, they just fly to New York or fly to Chicago or fly to San Francisco and get the things that they need. And then they go back home to Mississippi and they're like, oh, we can't have abortions here because that's against God. Mm, mm, mm. All along, they've had them, but they just, they just have the means to go and do what they need to do. And to your previous point, obviously some people can't fly off to Chicago every time they need to have an abortion, which is exactly what affluent conservative white people do. So that's it. That's all. Same thing with this whole drag queen thing. We got people pictured with drag queens dressing up in drag themselves. I mean, it's fucker and foolishness. But then they want to pass all these bills and laws that says we can't have drag shows. But wait, you were just at one. You literally had a fundraiser (laughs) at the drag show. (laughs) A whole fundraiser. (laughs) One last point. Did you know, I don't know if you of the wonders knew this. So Ron DeSantis, who's running for president, you know, he's, he's on this, you know, this war against Disney. They're the devil. They're woke. They're this, they're all mm-hmm. the rest. Did you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you one guess. Where do you think he and his wife got married? Not in Magic Kingdom. Where did they? <laughs> he and his wife got married at Epcot. Which Shut is, up. Wait, wait, <laughs> wait. Because <laughs> this is how deep it goes. Ron DeSantis got married at Walt Disney World, and now he says that they're the devil. You now, y'all fix it. Fix it, Jesus. Fix, fix it, rainbow colored Jesus. So you know, it's it's fuckering foolishness. You literally can't marry your wife at Epcot, and then tell me that Epcot is the devil. Like that doesn't make any like it's nonsense. And I keep waiting on someone to like hold up a mirror to the sheer hypocrisy and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? How, you, when you weren't saying Disney would work when you were giving the money to have your wedding? 
I can only imagine how much it costs to get married to Epcot's <laughs> I had no idea. Shut up. But that was but that was before he had this political agenda yes. Yes. to run for president yes. on the on the on the whole platform of woke. So yes. now so now Disney is is no good, but they were good enough to take his money to marry his wife. <sighs> we, girl, whatever. Let's get on to Glad because this is this is bullshit. <laughs> Let's what today explain also did a really good episode on Ron DeSantis recently and they talked about how he is constantly reinvent essentially reinventing himself and finding these issues in order to have a base but they didn't mention that that is a tickle that is what I needed to hear not Epcot shut up okay so as we've been talking just about pride we know that it is is more than than rainbows in June so we just want to just kind of run down a list of, of ways and suggestions that folks can be an ally all year round. And this list came from GLAAD, but I do also want to um, uplift this um, HRC from the HRC Foundation being an ally resource, which is really, it's actually really good. They're giving you like 25 pages of, of terminology, of LGBTQ history, of, because um, one of the things that they talk about is knowing the history, right? And just acknowledging the being aware of the fact that LG, the LGBTQ plus community has been around, as you would say, since Flintstones and the impact that they have been making on all of our lives forever. And so one part of being an ally is knowing and understanding and taking the time to learn. The glad list was a lot longer, but I just pulled out a few. Be a listener, be open-minded, be willing to talk, and they also mentioned like being willing to ask questions. One of the things that came up in one of the sessions that I was at for Black Pride, it was really good. It was on, on pronouns. But one, be willing to talk, be willing to ask questions. However, you yourself, be willing to do the research because your, your queer friends don't have to always be your encyclopedia. There's YouTube, there's Google. Go out there and also learn what you need to learn. They, are, they don't have to be your uh, spokesperson. And your educator. The next one, don't assume that all your friends and coworkers are straight. Hmm. Some Someone close to you could be looking for support in their coming out process. Not making assumptions will give them the space they need. The next one is confront your own prejudice and biases, even if it's uncomfortable to do so. And I think that one is, is huge. I would definitely say even for the Black community. Second to last is defend your LGBTQ friends against discrimination. We talked about these, all of these laws that are being passed. Is there anything that you could be doing in your community to, you know, to protest, to letter write, whatever it looks like um, for you? And then lastly, believe that all people, regardless of their gender identity and sexual or orientation should be treated with dignity and respect. And I really feel like that should be um, number one, just acknowledging that people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. Are there any that stood out to you or that you would add? <laughs> we already <laughs> talked about you sucking dick. I just came today. <laughs> Why are you like this? <laughs> you know, I like the point about that you made about not putting, putting the, it's a shared responsibility to be aware. Like, um, and I often think about that when, when I'm as a black person, like in a room full of white people and a black topic comes up and everyone kind of looks my way. And I'm like, mm -mm, nope, this is, this is a shared responsibility. Just because you don't have black skin doesn't mean that you can't read the same books I'm reading. <laughs> Literally. And on this show, if, if nothing else, we're going to give you a couple, two, three, four, five black books to read. Okay. Now, now I can speak from my my experience walking down the street every day as a person of color, but that does not stop you from seeking out information on your own. And so I think that that would I would lean into that. I would be like, even if you're not a queer person, you it is still your responsibility to seek out information and to learn more. We have a great book coming up that I'm going to preview here in a second. But I think that that's important. Sometimes people feel like, oh well, I'm not a woman, so I don't need to. I don't. I, that's not a space for me. I'm not a queer person, so that's not a space for me. Do you, have you been in a queer space, even though you're not a queer person? Do you know what that feels like? Have you met a drag queen? Have you talked to one? You know what, that, that is a great, people used to say, this may be a little dated. Once you meet a gay person and you talk to them, your views around gay people shift. 
And I think if you actually met a drag performer and you talk to them, you realize that they're a whole person and not some caricature. And it, it forces you to be like, oh, wow, this, is, this isn't what I thought it was at all. And so just get out there and learn. Go to Pride, go to a parade, go to a, go to a festival. Um, just be in the space as opposed to feeling as though there's not space for you. And it is June. So wherever <laughs> you live on this here planet, there is some good gay shit for you to do. I'm, I'm going to a Pride function later today. <laughs> There's plenty of really <laughs> rainbow colorful shit for you to do, period. <laughs> Tell us about the book. Let's do the recap first. Um, what you need to know this week is that Black mental health is a thing. Dr. Walker's book on the unapologetic um, guide to Black mental health is a very good book, especially for Black women, Black girls, and for, um, you know, clinicians who are taking care of Black people. So that's what you need to know. What you got to feel is that um, France is a whole mood. Go to France, particularly the south of France, if the mood so strikes you. Go to Monte Carlo. Um, Don't ask to take out $50 at the window because they're going to send you to to the ATM. And what you got to do is know that um, this is Pride Month. There's a lot of fuckery and foolishness going on to try to take us away and distract us from our shine. But that is okay because you know what? We're going to be gay anyway. Gay anyway. That's my theme. I put up my flag on my flagpole here today. I'm just back and I'm going to put it up. And speaking of gay anyway, and that's okay, I am pleased to announce the Ward and Webster Better You Book Club Selection for June 2023. And what we have for you is The Little Book of Queer Icons by Samuel Alexander. I'm going to read the description. Discover the fascinating stories behind 38 queer icons, all of them groundbreakers, risk takers, and game changers. Whether they are activists, sports people, scientists, or superstars, every one of these people has been a trailblazer in their field and deserves to have their achievements celebrated the world over. Be empowered and inspired by their extraordinary life stories, their awesome achievements, and their wonder words of wisdom with this pocketbook of remarkable people and prepare to be introduced to a new, to a few new superheroes. So this is a pocketbook sized uh, book. It's only 160 pages. It was published in October of 2019. And it's really, I think, based on the description and the cover, it looks like it's going to be a profile of 38 queer people, some people of color, some trans, some not. But I thought, Bianca, that it would be a great way to kind of celebrate Pride Month by leaning into the stories of people who have been trailblazers. And so I'm very excited about this because I feel like it'll be an easy, light way to stay informed, to stay inspired, and to learn about some folks that we don't learn about, or to learn about folks we don't know that much about. So it's called The Little Book of Queer Icons by Samuel Alexander. That's our book for June. We will be reviewing it on our June 24th show. Damn, June 24th already? Um, I'm glad it's tiny. (laughs) This is cute. I I like it. This is a good selection, friend. All right, let's get on out of here. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to this iconic podcast wherever you listen to it. And go to our website at wardandwebster.com every Saturday morning or every Saturday afternoon for new episodes of this show. (laughs) (laughs) and you're welcome we told y'all we look we told y'all what two weeks ago give us some grace sometimes it's gonna look it is a it is a gonna be a busy summer y'all but we're going to give you what we can anything else bianca (sighs) thank you for sticking with us um we hope you have a wonderful gay day Have a wonderful gay day. It's pride. We will sprinkle pride segments throughout this month because y'all know that's what we do here. And that's that it. Is, that's all. You that's what we it. do here. And it's Caribbean Heritage Month. So I might bring some real Jamaican shit next month. Or next I didn't week. know. Let's do a segment. Let's do we, Can we do a segment on that? We shall. Oh, we can do a segment on the uh, specifically the Caribbean gays. Let's marry the two. <laughs> Let's talk about the. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Jamaican gays we know and love. <laughs> we'll have Kenya come back. Oh my gosh, good times. We got. Oh, them. that would that would be so much fun. <laughs> I'm Isaiah Webster. I am Bianca, your favorite ally, Ward. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you.